Hello, and welcome to the Deeply Rooted Podcast. We are here to root deep in God's Word so that we can live lives of unshakable faith. My name is Ben Jacobson. I am one of the pastors here at Hope Lutheran Church in Fargo, North Dakota, and I am joined today by my colleague, Pastor Ben Sullivan. Ben, good to have you. Yeah, thank you. Always a joy. Oh, you know what? Let me just say that again. Good to have you. Oh, please, you shouldn't have. There you go. Hey, these sound like the same people from last week. Oh, yeah, they're a good crowd, though, (laughs) our listeners. Maybe they've been rehearsing that. I don't know. We are continuing our journey through. Right now we're in the Old Testament. Um, Last week we covered the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings. And this week we're going to cover Hosea, one of the minor prophets, uh, minor, not meaning uh, lesser, but shorter than the longer, pro- longer, you know, the major prophets that are much longer books. Um, and we're going to cover a little bit of Hosea's story. We won't be able to cover it all, of course, but we'll key in on some of the important points. There's an interesting line in this book. It's Hosea 7, 8, and uh, it talks about how the people of Israel are compared to a half-baked cake. And if you want half-baked cake, you have to go to the New, New Living, Living Translation. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so what we're reading out of, the NIV doesn't say half-baked cake, but got me thinking about cake. Cake got me thinking about dessert. Ben, tell me, what is your favorite dessert? you got to love when you're reading the Bible and it makes you think about cake. Oh, oh yeah. man, favorite dessert. You know, there's a lot of good desserts. Uh, cake, you know, cake is good and all. Um, but but uh, only if it's fully cooked. Y- yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, ice cream, mm, have been kind of on the fence of ice cream uh, throughout my life. Um, brownies are good, but, man, pie. You pie. cannot have a bad pie. Strawberry, rhubarb, um, Apple, strawberry, rhubarb, anything like that. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic. Apple, strawberry, rhubarb. Do you put whipped Maybe cream on it? I might have made up the apple part. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I actually remember that. Oh, whipped cream all the time. Whipped cream. Yep. Not Cool Whip, whipped cream, or both, either. Is there a difference? Oh, yeah. Big difference. Pro- probably whatever's on the table. <laughs> I like pie. There's a particular pie that uh, someone who comes about this time of year uh, to our where we hunt, and he brings a blueberry pie from a bakery from where he lives, and it is the best pie that I have ever had, blueberry. Ooh. Can you tell us which uh, place that he got well, this a, from? It's which a bakery in bakery? Hastings. Okay. Hastings. Can't remember the name of the bakery. So just go to Hastings. You're, just drive bound, there. you're yep. bound to find a bakery. Go yep. get their blueberry pie. Yep. Yep. Can't go wrong. No, you can't go wrong. I like pie, too. Mm -hmm. I also like pecan pie a lot. Mm -hmm. And pumpkin. And apple. And... Unless it goes on cherry. No, I don't like cherry pie. Mm. doesn't work for me. Ooh. I also like French silk. Banana cream will work in a pinch. Yeah. (laughs) But they all have to be baked fully. And uh, the reason that Israel is compared to a half-baked cake is because... They don't carry out their part of the covenant with God. 
So we're going to learn about that, hear about that in a moment. Um, and we're going to talk about Hosea. So I'm going to read to you. Hosea is 14 chapters. I'm going to read to you from chapters 10 and 11. It's a short book. You can, re- you could probably read it all in one sitting. Pretty simply, it might take you 40 minutes, mm-hmm. but it could be done. And if you have the time to do that, I would invite you to do that because I think something happens when we read a whole uh, a book in its entirety because that's how it's meant to be consumed. Yeah. Um, so, encourage you to do that. But we'll read from ten and eleven. This is the New International Version, Hosea chapter 10. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, We have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. Those who had rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained Heifer that loves to thresh, so I will put a yoke on her neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. The roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated as Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. So will it happen to you, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, 
taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down and fed them. Will they not return to Israel? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Okay, Ben, what did you notice? What questions do you have? Uh, One thing I noticed, I didn't even write this as a note or, or take note of it before. As you're reading, especially in chapter 11 there, um, it brought me to Luke chapter 15 in my mind, uh, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and it almost sounded like the words that you were speaking were probably thoughts, words that I'm sure the father in the parable of the prodigal son was thinking mm. about his son who took his inheritance and ran off and you hear the love of the Father, the faithfulness of the Father, mm-hmm. uh, and yet the the lack of love seemingly from the Son, the the lack of faithfulness from the Son, and and just this desire from the Father for the Son to turn back, to come back to Him, uh, and yet recognizing that, that that's not happening right now. And it's not a perfect comparison because, you know, parable of the prodigal son, we, we read and we see that eventually the, the, he does come back, the Son. Um, and we, we don't hear that at least in this particular uh, we know that, you know, there's ebb and flow of, you know, when they repent in the Old Testament and then they come back, they repent, they come back, mm-hmm. uh, and then they go away again. And, and, and you know, it's just kind of up and down, up and down until Christ comes. But um, that's one of the things that came to mind um, as you just read that here now. Yeah, that is that is an interesting comparison. I was thinking about uh, a f- few weeks ago, and we've talked about this several times over the past weeks when we've talked about Israel as a nation with a king. We talked about how in 1 Samuel 8, they asked for a king, and God said, well, you really don't want a king. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be that great for you. Yep. Um, but they pressed forward um, and got a king, and multiple kings and many kings. And by this point, they've had lots and lots of kings, some good, some really bad, some okay. And um, I, I noticed this in chapter 10, verse 3. Then we will say we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? Mm. Sort of this realization of what had happened then. Uh, oh, God was right. A king isn't going to do the things that we we had hoped for. Um, 
So let's talk about Hosea. Who is Hosea? Yeah, uh, you kind of alluded a little bit. Hosea's uh, the first of the 12 minor prophets. Doesn't mean he's under 18. It means that <laughs> yeah. uh, minor, again, not minor in importance, um, not minor in stature. Uh, it's minor. Short, these are, you know, a list of shorter um, books uh, from these uh, particular prophets. So, you know, kind of outlining, there's four major prophets. There's Isaiah, who wrote Isaiah. Uh, the Jeremiah, who wrote uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, Ezekiel, who wrote Ezekiel. And then Daniel, who wrote Daniel. And then uh, 12 minor prophets. So this is the first, Hosea. And then we see Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And that's at the end, very end of there is where we get to the Gospels. Uh, and so we're, we're on this journey here where we're, we're closing in as uh, Christmas, you know, we're in November and Christmas is coming around the corner. But um, we see Hosea is the first of these minor prophets. And, and it's interesting, Hosea's name actually means uh, something very, very similar to Joshua uh, in uh, scripture as well as Jesus. Hmm. Uh, so Joshua or um, Hosea's name means salvation. Um, Joshua in Old Testament name is, you know, God is our deliverer. Uh, God is deliverance to deliver to save. Uh, Jesus, of course, his name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the Old Testament God. This is the um, whole God of the Bible, the Lord. Uh, the Lord is our salvation. It uh, means, and so uh, very, very interesting that we, we see just that connection already to Christ. Uh, we know that Matthew 1, uh, 21, uh, when uh, the angel tells uh, Mary, you know, she will bear a son and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So connecting, you know, just even through the importance of names uh, there is very, very interesting. Yeah, and so um, Hosea is one of the prophets in the northern kingdom of Israel. I think the only prophet that's prophesying in the northern kingdom. He's there sort of at this very strange time for the northern kingdom where they've had prosperity, but now uh, things are starting to unravel. They have had uh, six different kings in 25 years, so lots of different turnover. Kings aren't very good, as I just noted, for them uh, because... They have been leading them astray. And so uh, Hosea there as a prophet, and as we talked about, prophets are not fortune tellers. Prophets are truth tellers. Mm -hmm. They tell the truth of, of God, and, and Hosea will tell that truth to God's people through the, the words that we read and, and the others of the 14 chapters of Hosea. Hosea has, so the, the first chapter has sort of an interesting beginning. God calls Hosea to, to marry someone and to marry someone who is a promiscuous woman is the translation that I have mm -hmm. in front of me and have children with her. Uh, an unfaithful, adulterous wife is who he's called to marry. And they have three children. And the three children are, are named uh, Jezreel, Lo-Ruhama, and Lo-Ami. And those names mean, Jezreel means God sows. Lo, Ruhama means not pitied. And um, Lo, Ami means not my people. Or th those translations in the NIV are not my people. And then the, other, the, um, 
not loved. Yep. I really appreciate just, uh, you know, come in because when you're reading uh, Hosea 1, you don't have to look it up their name and what that means. It just tells you right there. Right. Yep. So very Which helpful. doesn't always happen. It does not. For Hosea, I had to uh, do a little research, so... Yeah, it's very nice of them to give us that uh, translate. But, but it's because it's very important, right? Um, important because here Hosea is in this relationship with an unfaithful wife, and they have these children that are sort of, this whole thing becomes a metaphor for God and the people of Israel, the people of Israel being the unfaithful wife and God being the salvation uh for them and the the one who is steadfast and faithful in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. And um, God will eventually say those names, which mean, you know, not my people, not loved, will be flipped. And he will say, say to your brothers, you are my people and your sisters, my loved ones. So immediately at the beginning of this book, we set up this metaphor of, of the people of Israel as being unfaithful, God as being faithful, mm-hmm. the children of, of Israel being uh, not loved and not God's people because of their sin, mm-hmm. because of the ways they've walked away, turned away from God on their own. Yep. And then God, who calls them out of that sin to be called his people, and his loved ones. And so the what follows in Hosea, if you read through the whole thing, is, is these ebbs and flows of very, very intense judgment mm-hmm. for their sins of idolatry and um, just overall blatant unfaithfulness. We'll talk more about that. But then also this very tender, loving, merciful call back mm-hmm. to God. And so that's set up in the beginning there is a, a moment that comes later where Hosea reconciles with his wife and calls her his own, and they continue in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And then Hosea starts to speak these these proclamations of, of judgment and and of repentance. And so, Ben, what what happens in in let's let's focus in maybe on just on chapter eleven. Yeah, I, I know you had mentioned, you know, there's beauty in reading large amounts of Scripture. Uh, there absolutely is, and I believe at the same time there's beauty in, in narrowing in. And yeah. uh, so we, yep. and so let's listen to a whole passage, which we did. Let's dive in. Uh, yeah, chapter 11. Uh, I think it's important to note Hosea is, yeah, he's a truth teller. He's speaking on behalf of God. So uh, he doesn't, but it's almost as if he begins by saying, Thus saith the Lord, mm-hmm. here we go. Mm-hmm. So uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So we'll, we'll pause there. You know, it's very interesting terminology that's being used there. Israel being God's chosen people. Uh, but let's listen to the verbiage uh, being used. Israel is a child loved. And out of Egypt, it says, I called my son. There's a couple things happening here. We begin to see God not only as a husband to his bride, as we see in the analogy, but also as a father. Uh, second half of the verse here is, all, is a reference to Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, when it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, Herod was king at the time and was having the firstborn sons killed in hopes of killing the Christ who would be coming, the Son of God. And so uh, God the Father tells Joseph, the husband of Mary, in a dream to get Jesus out of Egypt. 
uh, Matthew 2, 14 through 15. It says, So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Mm. And so really just helpful, you know, we see that a lot in the New Testament where they, uh, that's why we can't get rid of the Old Testament, because uh, most of the New Testament is founded from everything that we see in the Old Testament. This is just one of those clear examples of, of something that's showing a uh, pretty clear connection of of what happened to Jesus coming, and I love the I love the layers of that because yes, it is that, and it is also a reference to the Exodus mm-hmm. and God calling the Israelites, the Hebrew people, out of Egypt, and so that's mirrored in the story of Jesus, God's redemptive salvation uh, that comes in His calling them out of this place, right? So uh, the story just sort of tells itself over and over again and that's like you said that's the beauty of interwoven uh, yeah of how how these cross references and stories are retold and given new life through God's action it's beautiful mm-hmm. and i think the the beautiful part is that the overarching message here is god is loving mm-hmm. uh, he's loving he's protective he is faithful uh, to his people, just like a child, a father, you know, loving father loves their child. Um, and he loves us so well. Uh, but then we get to verse two and we start to, you know, widen the, widen the picture a little. It says, but the more they, meaning his people were called, the more they went away from me. So here we see God's loving is faithful, but his people, which could now presume to be us, you know, as we're recognizing our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, he's not talking about us in particular here. He's talking about his people Israel at the time. Um, but his people are unloving and unfaithful. Uh, I think that's a very clear tendency to see that we each have a, a tendency to run from the God who loves us. And yet we continue on with verse 2. Uh, what did they do? How did they run away? It said, well, they sacrificed to the Baals and they burn incense to images. So they're worshiping. False, False gods, gods. Yeah, idols, which is what was talked about last week. You know, um, this this idea of these false gods who do not have compassion. They're they're not alive, and so there's they they don't hear. They're not listening. They're um, they're false called false for a reason. Um, you know, we hear this idea of the one true God uh, continually, who is the Lord, and and uh, and yet for whatever reason uh, they have these fake false gods that they run to over and over. You know, as I was reading Hosea to prep for this, I, I, f- I caught myself thinking, man, these people really got it wrong. <laughs> and then I stopped and I realized, wait a minute. I am them and they are me. And yes, I'm not sacrificing to Baal and I'm not burning incense on altars, but boy, do I have sin in my life that needs to be reshaped and healed yep. and forgiven. Um, and, and so these are the common sins of that day. Yeah. But boy, we have a lot in our world. And I think that's really important for us to pause and, and note because I think it is easy to read this, you know, read any parts of Scripture and go, man, they are awful, they are terrible. And we never associate ourselves with the people who are being trashed in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we seem to associate ourselves with uh, the hero, the, the ones who always do the right thing. And although there may be times where we do take, you know, times of, of you know, taking the mode of integrity or however you want to say, it, man, we have to acknowledge that the whole point of 
purpose of scripture is to not put ourselves as the savior, right? But to always put ourselves first as the one who went away. Because the reality is, is that you know, bringing it full circle, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the wages of sin is death, meaning that it's not just them; it is, it truly is us. Um, and so, we're a half baked cake, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I really appreciate the, the taking a second to pause because, yeah, you know, we need to humble ourselves any chance that we open up his word and, and begin to read. So we know who we are now. Yeah. And I think in verse three, we it switches to who is God. Yeah. Uh, we begin to see, you know, what has the Lord done in the midst of this? Uh, and what we begin to see is he has treated us like a kind parent, again, treats their child. You know, verse three, it was... I who taught Ephraim, which is Israel, to walk, talking or taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the meek, and I bent down to feed them. It's just this picture of, you know, almost this helpless child who doesn't maybe even know. You know, I'm thinking of our daughter Ruby as I'm reading this. She, you know, she she's starting to get to know us pretty well. You know, she sees us and smiles and sees strangers and doesn't always know what to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but early on, I'm sure it's hard to know that, hey, this is mom, this is dad. And so all they know is this person is caring for me. They don't really know anything otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's just this beautiful trust in the middle of that. Um, and so it's almost as if God is reminiscing about these times that he walked alongside of them and and again, I, I just think back to Luke 15, you know, the parable of the prodigal son of like, I'm sure the father was reminiscing of all the times he got to spend with his son before he ran off, you know? Yeah. And like the, um, you know, as we're going to see the anger that that brought probably for him, the sorrow that that brought, and yet the compassion in the midst of all of that. Um, as we keep reading, we'll, we'll see all of those attributes kind of at work here. Uh, but we get to verse five and we begin to see, you know, what, should Israel's response be? What will Israel's response be? Verse 5, will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? You see, so com- coming out of that, you know, despite God's kindness, Israel was ungrateful. Uh, and they were deserving of punishment because of, of what happened. Uh, and so we ask, you know, what will happen? Verse 6, a sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. Um and then my people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me the God most high, I will by no means exalt them. Uh, two things I want to note uh, really quick there. Uh, I will devour their false prophets, uh, put an end to their plans. Um, I got a chance to uh, take a look at uh, the passage of David being uh, anointed king here and uh, a couple weeks back. And one of the things to, that I kind of uh, noted about that was a, a quote from Pastor Craig Rochelle. He said, if it's God's time, you can't stop it. But if it's not his time, you can't force it. Hmm. Um, I think he actually flips it around. If it's not his time, you can't force it. If it is his time, you can't stop it. I think the same is if it's not his will, you can't force it. But if it is his will, you can't stop it. Hmm. Here, I'm just reading this, you know, it'll devour their false plans. It'll put an end to their plans. They had this plan but it was not the will of God. And so no matter how determined they were, no matter how far that they had ran, uh, he put an end to it because it wasn't his ultimate will. Uh, And then verse 7 sounds very, you know, eerily 
uh, similar to a passage in the New Testament uh, that Jesus says. Uh, I'll see if you can notice here. He says, My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. Man, these words sounded very familiar. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus, uh, if you remember, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform all these miracles? So they don't, they kind of disregard the evil in their life and they are just focusing on all their good works and, and hoping that their good works will will get this for them. But then he said, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. Away from me, you evildoers. Uh, this is Jesus saying this, you know, loving Jesus. Uh, and it just shows that um, man Yes, repentance is needed, but also we need the grace of God to clean us of all the times that we have walked away from him, uh, to clean us, to make us new. Uh, Repentance in itself and starting to do all these good works, that's good. We should do that. Uh, But that in itself is not going to cleanse us of our sin. Hence why, of course, Christ comes and uh, by his death, by his resurrection, he cleanses us of all the things that we could never have cleansed for ourselves. Uh, Should I keep going? I think you should. All right. Uh, we're at verse 8 here. Uh, here we begin to see, uh, you know, we, we've heard, okay, he's running, all these people, the Israelites running. We, we get to verse 8, and here we begin to see the mercy and the compassion of the Lord. Because, again, as you were saying, you know, at the beginning, um, they're not, uh, I can't remember how you said it exactly, like they're not loved, they're, they're broken, they're separated mm-hmm. because of, of, sin. Yeah. S- of their sin, yep. and yet they're loved because of his mercy. Yep. Um, and so here, that's where we see verse eight. You know, how can I give you up, Ephraim? Again, Israel. You know, our God is a, a God of compassion. Unlike you know the lifeless Baals in verse two, He's saying, "How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? Uh, how can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like uh, Zeboim? You know, Adma and Zeboim were cities destroyed alongside Sodom and Gomorrah uh, because of their wickedness. And so He's like, "How can I do that? I can't." Uh, my, he says, my heart within me uh, is changed. All my compassion is aroused. Uh, you know, usually when I hear something aroused from God, it's his anger. But he said, my compassion is aroused. He said, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. So we see he has anger mm-hmm. and it's fierce. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will not carry out my fierce anger. He has it, uh, but he also has self-control and he has a God full of mercy uh, and patience in the middle of that all. So God, God's fierce anger, his wrath, is a consequence of, or it is his reaction to sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does have a reaction. He does do something about it, but he doesn't carry it out in the way that we would as human beings. And when you continue on, he says, for I'm God, mm-hmm. I'm not a man. Yeah. For he is far above anything that we could ever be ourselves. You know, it's his grace, compassion towards sinners. You know, that's, I was going to take a note of, you know, what you were talking about earlier. You know, the, like, we're fully condemned and yet we are filled with grace when we, you know, come to Christ. Um, and that's what, you know, Martin Luther talked about, you know, the, it's like that, that balance that we are fully sinner. Uh, we will never not be a sinner. And yet at the same time, we are fully a saint. So we are condemned, yes, by our sin, but we have been saved and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Um, 
So and we exist fully in two truths, right? The mm-hmm. truth that we are sin-filled and, and the truth that we are redeemed. And, and we wobble back and forth between those two. And I think this chapter really is outlining that yeah. very, very helpfully. Mm-hmm. Um, just to show, you know, whenever we attribute only one attribute to God, we fail to see him for all of his attributes. If yeah, we say that's a good God observation. Is, if we say God is love uh, and that's where we leave it, that's true. But then we also, you know, w- what if we get to a passage like this and say, well, it sounds like there's a lot of wrath and anger in him too. Um, but if at the same time, if we're only focusing on his wrath and his anger and we never get to his love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, uh, we're going to have a, a partially accurate view of God, but a, a, par- a very partially uh, inaccurate view of him too. we we got to put all of these attributes together and understand the greater picture. And you see actually in this chapter alone, uh, God recounts the story through Hosea of how, how he's been at work in the lives of these people. And then you see that ups and the up and down that I was talking about before where it totters and teeters between this is who I am, this is what you've done, this is who what I should do, but this is what I will do. You mm-hmm. know, this sort of back and forth between sin and redemption that jumps up and up and down. Yeah. So yeah, let's continue. Uh, we got the last uh, final two verses, and we can kind of see, you know, these were the two verses I'm like, man, you know, I'm a little, you know, confused, not entirely sure if there's a question about any of the passages, is these two verses, and we can kind of dive in. Uh, it said, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. And so we were kind of looking at, you know, what is what are a couple possibilities here? Uh, it almost sounds like this, again, kind of like what we've been doing with this passage is seeing the full circle of Scripture. In a sense, it's it almost has terminology of looking back at uh, the return of God's people from exile. Uh, this here, you know, this idea of like him bringing them to a brand new home. Uh, they will come from Egypt trembling, uh, but I will settle them. I will give them peace. Um, so it's like looking back, but in a sense, um, you know, and even a couple of the commentaries I read beforehand, um, part of this could also be a, a foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ. You know, verse 10, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Love that. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. That, like, our God is a roaring lion, and he is going to come and roar again. And, you know, I can't remember exactly which direction he'll come. I'm sure Stephen could tell me. Uh, <laughs> Stephen knows a lot of that information. But, like, from the west, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, a lot of, you know, there's something with, like, cemeteries facing west or whatever that is if maybe i'm getting this incorrect but uh, they do that because they know that when christ comes that's the direction that he's going to come it's mm-hmm. something along those lines so i may be way off um but uh but those are kind of some of the pictures did you have other thoughts with that you know i think as we kind of talked before you know i was just looking at these last actually probably three verses here um i love this idea of I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, yeah, probably a historical dimension to that of those who have been exiled will find a home. But then there's that spiritual dimension of all of us are wandering homeless in this world Mm -hmm. because of sin. We have been displaced from 
the place that we call home, quite literally from Eden, the, the paradise where God lived with his people. We have all been displaced from that spiritually. And this promise that God will then settle us in a place that is a home for us, I think is beautiful. I love this gospel promise that comes in, in verse 9, where it says, For I am I'm God and not a man, the Holy One among you. Uh, because God is God, God can do things that we cannot do. But God accomplishes that by becoming a human mm-hmm. to do the things that only God can do. Um, so, yeah, there's just so many layers to every verse of this is packed with mm-hmm. so much. Um, and I'm I'm always amazed by that when we stop and we take time to read scripture and see, A, the beauty of it, the promise of it, uh, the the way that it reveals to me who I am, <laughs> the failings that I have, mm-hmm. and who God is, and God's goodness. And so here we have both of those things yeah. in an amazing... Well, I think for anybody reading a passage like this, you know, you hear both sides of things. You hear the the condemnation of it, and so, you know, we can be overwhelmed by the weight of our own brokenness, the weight of our own sin. We can feel a lack of sense of hope initially. Um, But if you continue to read, I think that's the beautiful part is uh, he never leaves his people in that place. Um, But he always carries them through and shows them that, hey, even in the midst of your condemnation, your brokenness, uh, there's a greater reality that I have stored up for you. And so it's, you know, understanding all of that, it's, it's, you know, like, thri- like not thrilling, it's um, unsettling maybe, because, you know, we heard that word unsettling, and yet uh, a phrase, I, you know, that came to mind as we're reading that is that God settles the unsettled. Hmm. And I think that's maybe the, like, passage of Scripture should make us shake in our boots a little bit, but then also it should leave us with an incredible sense of comfort for who God is in the midst of uh, what initially made us shake in our boots in the first place. So I love that. That's beautiful. It is. I want to leave you folks with a a thought, uh, and it's this. Verse 8 says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Wherever you're at today mm-hmm. with your heart and wherever you're, you know, whatever you're struggling with, I want you to read that verse, but put your name in there. How can I give you up, Ben? How can I hand you over, Ben? That's how God feels about you. He will never give you up or let go. Um, you know, that reminds me of what Jesus said when he said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Mm-hmm. Just this beautiful um, passage. So a reminder today that God does not want to give you up or hand you over. So we'll be back again next week. We're going to look at the prophet Isaiah and uh, hear more about God's judgment and God's promise for redemption. If you want to find out more about Fargo Hope, uh, go to Fargo, or sorry, Hope Lutheran in Fargo, uh, go to FargoHope.org, and we've got lots of information on there. I invite you to like, subscribe, to share this podcast with the people in your life. And in the meantime, stay deeply rooted. Thanks, Ben. Good hey, to have you so on. Much.